Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Responding to adversity, a Maui town devastated by the worst wildfire in U.S. history, a Chinese economy that can't catch a break, and a former U.S. president facing a fourth indictment. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week's special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard and Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors on why the yield on the 10-year is headed higher. You're looking at 475 on uh, the 10-year, and it could end up being higher than that. And what investors make of the softening Chinese economy. I have been more optimistic about China in the past, and I will say that I have recalibrated my views. And Greg Taxon of Spotlight Advisors on the drop-off in activist investing. There's some, some dampening because of the M&A market. It may be August, but it was a tough week for many on or near Global Wall Street, starting with the victims of that wildfire that destroyed much of the town of Lahaina, Maui, with over 100 dead, many yet to be accounted for, and billions of dollars in damages. A whole city destroyed. Generations of native Hawaiian history turned into ruin. President Xi over in China had problems of his own, with reports this week of continued weakness in his economy and stimulus moves that the markets pretty much shrugged off. To some extent, we'd like to see more policy action uh, before we'd be getting a, a lot more comfortable moving into more China-related exposures. Former President Trump confronted a different kind of problem this week when he faced a fourth indictment. 
This one from a state prosecution in Georgia alleging he was part of a racketeering organization along with 18 others trying to overturn the 2020 election. This is an extremely serious indictment. The allegations are serious. And if he's convicted, he's going to do time. On the brighter side, U.S. retail sales numbers came in surprisingly high, indicating the continued strength of the consumer and therefore of the economy. The consumer is out there and able to spend at the moment. But continuing strength in the U.S. economy did little to reassure the markets this week, as the S&P 500 lost over 2% to end the week at 4369, bringing it back down toward the median number of where our Bloomberg L's predict we will end up the year. That's 4300. The Nasdaq also had a rough week of it, down 2.6%, at least in part because of those equity declines, no doubt came from the rise in the yields in bonds. With the 10-year yield moving up nearly 10 basis points, putting it well above 4% at 4.25%. To sort it all out, we welcome now Chris Aylman. He's the Chief Investment Officer of Calsters and Chanel Desai. She is Franklin Templeton, CIO for Fixed Income. Welcome, both of you, to come back to Wall Street Week. You've both been on quite a few times now. Chris, let me start with you. Were you surprised anything that happened with the bond yields this week? Well, yes, uh, surprised that, uh, as, as Larry Summers said, that bond yields are heading up and I think going to be heading higher. I mean, he's talking 50 basis points. So uh, I'm, I'm cautious, and I would be worried about trying to trade fixed income in here. I like it as a buy and hold, uh, but I don't like it from a trading standpoint. Yields are going to head up. 4.75, Chris, do you agree with Larry on that? Well, I'm not going to argue with Larry Summers, <laughs> and I'm not going to try and nail down that number. Uh, that's a big reach, like I said, a half a point from here. But I do think interest rates are going to stay higher for longer. We're not going to see rates go back down like a lot of the street had predicted. Chanel, you really focus on fixed income. What did you make of the bond market this week? So honestly, I think this is the bond market finally coming around, coming to terms with certain facts. Here's the thing. For a long time, uh, even the Fed, when you, when you look at the Fed funds rate, the long-term Fed funds rate, they're looking at 2.5%. If inflation were 2%, this is real yields of half a percent. If I look at not the anomaly of the post-global financial crisis period, but I look at from the 1950s all the way up to 2007-8, really, we're looking at yields, real yields, which were around 2 to 2.5%. So here's the thing. That's the math. You take even if we get back to 2% inflation, real, real yields at 2 2.5% takes you to 45 already. So, and that's at the short term. And then you have term premium if you're looking at 10-year yields. Yeah, I actually think 4.75 is not unreasonable, not at all. Chris, when we talk about these bond yields, we talk about things like expectations of, uh, of inflation, and we talk about what the Fed is likely to do. What about the, the demand or maybe the supply of treasuries? Because it's clear the United States government is going to have to borrow a lot more. At the same time, for example, Japan may not want as many. The bond market and the yield curve is nothing but supply and demand, and there is a ton of supply coming. Uh, the Treasury Department has, uh, just due to all those budget negotiations, a huge calendar in front of them. And we are seeing buyers being a little bit cautious. You just reported about China and its weak economy. They've got to protect their currency, uh, so they may not have as much capital. I think there's going to be a lot of focus on the tail 
on all of our bond auctions. In other words, how much demand and how clean those auctions are. I always said, we're a debtor nation, and we better pay attention to that. We've got to borrow money, and it may be a bit tougher. Chanel, we borrowed a lot of money for fiscal stimulus. We've had a lot go into the system. Are we done yet? Where are we right now in fiscal supporting this economy? Honestly, you're look, we are looking at an economy which is through almost every estimate of full employment. And we have massively expansionary fiscal policy. This is getting hidden. In, you know, yes, there's discussion about, you know, terrible budget negotiations, all of that. But fundamentally, the economy in terms of employment is doing well. And at the same time, we are seeing fiscal deficits which are close to records. Five and a half percent odd last year. This year, it's at least as much, if not higher. And the CBO expects six percent-ish fiscal deficits for the next several years. This is a lot of issuance. And definitely that's a supply dynamic that's important. At the same time, you mentioned Japan, and Japan's very important uh, important here because we always focus on China, but actually Japan, which is, the, which is the largest holder of U.S. treasuries outside the U.S. And over the next few months, at some point, the Japanese central bank is going to lose Tight, begin tightening monetary policy, at which point we will see a reduction in demand for U.S. Treasuries. All of this is additional pressure on uh, yields. Uh, at what point do we run out of the so-called excess savings? Well, David, I think the uh, San Francisco Fed put on an excellent paper this week predicting that we may be seeing the end of that. And you had a great intro where he said the U.S. consumer is strong for now. So I'm starting to see little cracks, little signs of worry for me. Uh, our desk uh, uncovered that U.S. Uh, credit card applications literally fell off the shelf. Um, and that doesn't portend that people won't increase and start to borrow. But I'm worried the consumer is going to run out of money. And I think the San Francisco Fed really is spot on. If the consumer slows down, then we're going to see the impact of these higher interest rates. 22-year highs in mortgages and rates, that's got to hurt. And then we may actually finally see this recession that I've been predicting for over a year. Shana, as I say, you're, you're CIO for fixed income at Franklin Temple, but you watch the equity market. What about the valuations right now? Because as I looked at it today on the Bloomberg, we're over 20 times earnings in the price for the SP 500. Can we keep that up? So, okay, I'm going to I'm going to be very careful here because definitely I'm more fixed income than uh, on the equity side of things. But I do think on the fixed income side, we have finally seen some acceptance that higher yields are coming. On the equity side, I think we're at the beginning of this process. Mm. I think, again, in your intro, you mentioned that higher yields are going to have an impact on the equity market. And I do think those yields are higher. And more importantly, they're probably higher for a while to stay. And, you know, something that Chris mentioned, the strength of the U.S. consumer, I accept, I think actually the U.S. consumer probably is going to start weakening from a very strong point. And while the consumer might be beginning to run out of pandemic era savings, from a debt perspective, in real terms, the consumer is actually in pretty good shape. In real terms, the U.S. consumer can actually borrow a bit more and still look pretty healthy. Yeah, last thought on this, Chris. As we look at the GDP estimates, for example, Atlanta GDP, GDP now is way up there at 5.7, something like that. And a lot of people are taking their estimates. Is the, is the economy strong enough to keep going? 
Well, David, the elves uh, pointed out they're expecting uh, a lower market, uh, and I think they're spot on. I think that's a great indicator for people that that people look ahead, and you hit it right on the, the nail. Price-earnings ratio is really set for expectations in higher levels. Um, and I don't know if those earnings, while we've done okay in this earnings period, everybody is warning that the future earnings are too difficult and that may be a problem in that P.E. ratio, that the earnings falter and that means the price has to come down and the elves will be right. Okay, well, that's always good for the elves. Thank you very much for getting us started. That's Chanel Desai of Franklin Templeton and Chris Aylman of Calsters. Coming up, the yield on the 10 years seemed to settle in well above 4% this week. We asked contributors Larry Summers of Harvard and Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors where the 10-year wants to go and what that means for investors. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The yield on the U.S. 10-year government bond this week broke solidly through 4%, something it flirted with last October and then again briefly in early July. To consider what this might tell us about the state of the U.S. economy and what it means for investors, welcome back now special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. And we're joined as well by Steve Ratner, chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors, which manages the philanthropic and personal funds of Michael Bloomberg. He is, of course, our founder and majority shareholder. So, Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, first of all, so let's start with what the 
10 year may be telling us or not telling us about the economy overall, particularly where inflation is and where the economic growth is? Look, uh, David, I've been predicting that rates would rise for quite some time. The 10 years got three pieces. It depends upon expected inflation. It depends upon the real interest rate. And it depends upon the term premium of the amount that the 10-year rate is more than expected future short rates. If I take those three uh, pieces, uh, inflation may come down, but I think most people would be quite surprised if it was as low steadily as 2% over the next decade. So let's assume that inflation averages 2.5%. I think that's conservative. We don't know what's going to happen to the real interest rate, but we know that budget deficits look to be very large. Perhaps the budget deficit, uh, according to CBO, will get to 7% by the end of the decade. And I think on more realistic assumptions that assume that some of the Trump tax cuts are preserved, assume that we have to expand national security spending and make realistic assumptions about the servicing of the debt. The CBO thinks it's going to cost 2.3% for short-term Treasury bills. I think you put all of that uh, together and you're looking at a real interest rate of one and a half to two percent. And then you look at the fact that the Fed is selling down its portfolio. You look at the fact that the financial regulators trying to avoid SVB situations are making it harder for banks and other financial institutions to buy long-term uh, bonds. And term premiums usually are 75 to 100 basis points. So if you take two and a half and uh, for inflation, you take one and a half, which isn't especially aggressive for uh, real rates, and you take 75 basis points, which is lower than history, for uh, term premiums, you're looking at 475 on uh, the 10 year, and it obviously could end up being higher than that. So nobody knows, but it seems to me we're in a very different era than the era we were in in the aftermath of uh, the financial crisis. Uh, so, Steve, does that make sense to you as an investor, and perhaps even more important, let's assume that's right. Let's assume you knew today it was going to be 4.75 over the medium longer term. What does that do to your investments? Well, first of all, I think everything Larry said made good sense to me, and I think he's probably right and certainly uh, very clear and logically, logical think about it. Look, from the standpoint of an investor, it's always a question of what does the market think and do you have a differentiated view to, of that? And if you have a different view than the market, then you can obviously proceed on that basis. And if you don't, you go where you're going to go. So what is the market saying right now? The market looks more at the Fed. So let's talk, if we could, about the Fed, Fed funds rate. So the market basically at the moment is predicting one more hike in November and then a cut in rates next year down to, I think, about four and a quarter percent on the, this is on the short end um, of the curve. And 
how does the, why does the market think we're going to get there? Because the market thinks we're going to have a soft landing, basically. And the market thinks that inflation is going to come down to this 2 2.5% range. The Fed is going to kind of say, OK, uh, and we can now start to cut rates. And if you basically cut rates, uh, if you basically assume inflation is going to be in this 2.5% range, and you take 1 or 1.5% for real rates, then obviously the Fed funds rate could come down a good bit. So that's how the market is thinking about right now. Now, it'd be interesting to hear what Larry has to say about that, because if you have a different view than that, then you could be an, a more pessimistic view, which I would have, and I'd be interested in Larry's view, that the Fed is not going to be able to cut rates that fast, inflation is not going to come down that fast, that I think we're in a little bit of a uh, Goldilocks moment. Everybody's feeling great about things, but I think there's still a lot to worry about on the inflation side. Then you'd have to be reasonably pessimistic about the market once it wakes up and realizes that we're not going to have a four and a quarter percent rate. Now, there's one other way to get to that, which is even worse, which is, which is if we have a recession and the Fed starts to cut rates simply to deal with the recession. And there is pressure on earnings, as you probably know. Uh, forecasts for S&P earnings for next year have been coming down. Market has not reacted to that in a major way. But that's the other thing, obviously, that the market will be watching. Uh, so, Larry, uh, Steve's interested, so am I, in what your reaction is, both on the question about the rate cuts next year, but also on the recession. Because in the past, you have said 50% or more chance of recession. A lot of economists have backed off of that. Bank of America has. Apparently, the staff of the Fed has backed off of it now. Where are you today on a recession? So, in general, Steve and I are in raging agreement. <laughs> Look, there's no question that... The economy has come in stronger than almost anybody would have expected over the last few months. And despite that, the inflation figures have been relatively favorable. And those are the realities. And the question is how one processes uh, those realities. My guess is that the economy will stay strong for at least a little while from here, I'd be very surprised now if a recession started during 2023. I'm not as confident looking out a longer distance as many other people are, in part because I think the Fed's going to feel pressure to uh, continue uh, to tighten. And I think there are a range of factors from gasoline prices to health care, from continuing labor shortages in uh, many places to what's happening in the service sector, where you're going to see continuing uh, inflation pressures. So I still think there's a good chance of a recession in, uh, 20, uh, in uh, 2024. If we don't get that recession, I think it's much more likely that the Fed's going to feel pressure to raise rates faster than is now priced in than it is that the Fed is going to feel pressure to cut rates uh, faster than is now uh, priced in. And that will, in general, tend to push rates up um, outside of the curve. I also think that while I don't think the budget deficit is the central factor for rates in the short run, I think increasingly projected deficits are going to come into focus. 
And that is going to be a matter of concern for uh, longer term uh, rates. And that's part of why I don't particularly see the current level of of longer term rates as any kind of peak. Okay, Larry Summers and Steve Ratner will be staying with us because next we're gonna turn to the other big story of the week for Global Wall Street. That's China's economic struggles. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. China had a rough week economically, reporting weaker retail sales and industrial production and continued problems with its property market. Larry Summers and Steve Ratner have remained with us for their read on what's going on in China. Larry, let me start with you. In the past, you have expressed at least some skepticism about those who said that this is just going to keep going, the juggernaut that is the Chinese economy. It may have some problems. Are what we seeing what you predicted or is it even worse than what you thought? I try to avoid making near-term predictions, but I thought for a number of years that the Chinese juggernaut was going to slow. Juggernauts usually do in economics. Classic examples were Russia in 1960 when it was seen as going to surpass us in 1980, 
or Japan in 1990 when people expected uh, that it was going uh, to uh, surpass us. So it's a pretty good rule that when American high school kids rush to study a foreign language, that's about when the country's economy uh, is peaking. So you've got that. Then you have a variety of near-term challenges of the kind you just referred to, uh, financial uh, strains in China coming from excessive reliance on real estate and the drying up of uh, export markets. Then you've got some fairly profound adverse fundamentals uh, for China. The fact that Chinese parents had only half as many kids last year as they did uh, six years ago. The fact that there's large amounts of people with money in China who are very, very eager to get it out, which is always a sign of impending difficulty in emerging markets. So I would not be confident at all that China will be a faster than average growing major economy over uh, the next uh, decade. And that's obviously a big difference from the world we've been living with for the last 40 years. Uh, so just a personal note, Steve, uh, let the record reflect that Larry was right in his rule of thumb. I studied Russian in high school in the 1960s. <laughs> so so <laughs> certainly here's one anecdote that supports you, Larry. So, so you are an investor in China. You spent a lot of time there. We're there fairly recently, actually. What do you make of what we're seeing right now? Well, first of all, look, I have been more optimistic about China in the past, and I will say that I have recalibrated my views. I mean, it is definitely going through a tough period. I don't think I'm as pessimistic as Larry is. I would just mention, for example, that they may not make their 5% GDP growth number this year. Maybe it'll be 4, maybe it'll be 4.5. It'll still be probably twice what ours is. So I don't think we can yet sort of uh, wipe China off the blackboard. But look, they have a lot of problems, and I would put them in a couple of buckets. One, it was clear on my trip there that the sanctions that we've imposed and the whole deglobalization phenomenon and, and the fact that business feels that they have to be more careful about their supply lines has taken a toll. And it's definitely affected uh, their exports and their general mentality and their business. The second big problem they have is Xi. Who has, um, who has reasserted his control over the economy, who many of my, our investors that we talk to there feel doesn't really even understand economics. Uh, and you can, by their policy actions so far, I think you probably agree with that. And so you've got really bad government policy on top of a, a bunch of difficulties, whether it's the property sector, whether it's export, exports, whether it's whatever. Um, but I would, I would say I'm not completely going to wipe China off because I think you have to recognize that you do have a lot of tools. For example, uh, everybody talks about their debt. Nobody talks about their assets. The IMF just came out with a paper in the last few days that basically tried to look at the balance sheet, assets and liabilities of the Chinese government. And while their net assets have been coming down, they're still substantially positive. I think if you went through the same exercise for the U.S., you'd find a different result. Uh, their central government debt to GDP is only about 30%. They have plenty of scope to do something on the fiscal side to both stimulate the economy as well as uh, solve some of the problems that the provincial governments do have with debt, which are, which are very meaningful. 
So, Larry, to pick up on one thing that Steve said there, if President Xi is part of the problem, could he be part of the solution? And I guess that's a way of asking, are there things he could do? We saw some actions even this week where he tried to put some more money into the economy, although it's not clear that consumers have enough confidence to start spending it. But are there things that President Xi could do, or are what we're seeing sort of larger structural factors that you suggested that are outside of his control? I think it's a combination of both. Uh, I think, by the way, there are a lot of questions about uh, Chinese economic statistics. We talk about smooth earnings of U.S. corporations. I would politely suggest that that is as nothing compared to a fair amount of what goes on in Chinese statistical reporting. I thought it was interesting this week when the Chinese authorities who had been facing really very grave youth unemployment figures announced that youth unemployment figures weren't going to be published anymore uh, going, uh, going forward. So I think there are a lot of questions about what the real uh, growth rate uh, is. Beyond that, um, there are obviously things that China could do that would substantially uh, stimulate demand. But here's the core problem, or a core uh, problem. There's a basic tension between the politics and the economics in Chinese political economy. Is control going to rest with the 100 million people who are members of the party or the 1.2 billion Chinese citizens who are not members of the party? The expansionary fiscal policy consumption-led growth agenda is basically an agenda of spreading money all over the place and shifting it from the control of the Communist Party to the control of regular people who aren't part of the Communist Party. Uh, Steve, Larry makes an important point that I've always wondered about. As an investor in China, how do you trust the numbers? I mean, Larry points out that they've decided they're not going to report the use of unemployment because it was over 20%. It's not a good number. So how do you have confidence in the numbers as an investor? Well, remember, there's a difference between not reporting a number and making up a number. And I don't disagree with Larry about the statistics that they may be managed, but I would just make that distinction. They were reporting youth unemployment numbers. They were huge numbers, so they decided not to report them anymore. Look, the macro statistics are just a piece of what we think about when we invest there. We're, we're investing in companies or in managers who are investing in companies. And the question is, what are the prospects of the companies? And obviously, obviously the fundamentals of the country do relate to that. But that's not the only piece of, of how we go about investing. But I would say just a couple things about what Larry said. Uh, and I don't disagree again with, well, we might disagree a little bit about this. Look, I think fundamentally the deal between the Chinese government and the people has always been, we're going to make you rich and let us control and you know you're not going to have free speech you're not going to have this you're not going to have that but you're going to get into the middle class and so forth uh, Larry if China continues to struggle economically the way they have and Steve points out they're still growing more than we are but still struggle compared to where they were is that good for the United States and the rest of the world or is it bad do we need a strong uh, China economically or a weak one it's it's two-edged uh, it's good when your customer prospers and it's bad when your competitor gets hyper-efficient. So it's a two-edged uh, thing. I am concerned that we will become the object of China's frustration uh, 
and that will tempt them to uh, lash out. I think we need to be very careful uh, in our approach uh, to China at uh, a moment of this kind of difficulty, and we need to be more attentive than I think some of the policy advocates in Washington are to avoiding a situation where we terrify uh, China with the potential economic damage that we're going to do to them. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us on Wall Street Week. That's Larry Summers of Harvard and Steve Radner of Willett Advisors. Coming up, bringing puppies into the fight against inflation. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Activist investing. For years, it was all the rage for those trying to shake up companies and get some alpha. So we see companies that we think were once great have lost their way and that we have a plan for them to get back to greatness again. We're not there to leverage up these companies. We're not there to split them up. We're not there to do all the terrible things that typically go along with the term activist. But the dramatic rise in interest rates put a damper on mergers. Fourth quarter of 22, you had nothing. Today, you actually have the markets loosening up for the right deals. And the cooling of the M&A market took its toll on activist investing as well, as recognized by practitioners like Carson Block. Last year was probably the, the worst year in terms of the alpha generated by activist shorts since the global financial crisis. But that would surprise people because it's a year in which the S&P 500 declined. So activist investing may be at something of a crossroads, with some seeing it as becoming more mainstream. Activist short selling has become very mainstream uh, when I started the industry like 23 years ago, it was quite unique. And right now, if you don't have an opinion on a stock and you don't publish your opinion, that's even more unique. While others, like Jennifer Grancio of Engine Number no. 1, see it as integral to affecting basic change, as in the approach to climate. We think of ourselves as a performance firm. And so the next leg of decarbonization includes how do energy companies change, how do auto companies change. Exxon wasn't performing in a way it should have been performing. We took advantage of that. Finally, one more thought. Having your cake and eating it too. Isn't that what we all really want out of life? None of us wants to choose between Grace Kelly on the one hand and facing our sworn duty to stand up to the bad guys on the other. I mean it. If you won't go with me now, I'll be on that train when it leaves here. I've got to stay. Or giving up a star professional basketball player in order to pursue a championship team. Yeah, the toughest thing in this in sports is, uh, you know, we all love Marcus Smart, but the, the goal in Boston is to win championships, and to do that, you have to put the best team out there that you possibly can. And for the last 17 months, we've all been hoping we can avoid another Hobson's choice, that we can have our cake of a strong economy and eat into inflation at the same time. As of today, it looks like we just may pull it off, as inflation has come down, even if not yet as much as we would like. Right now, inflation is coming down. We've made some progress, some good progress. I feel good about that. It's still too high. And even though some continue to warn it may bounce back up again. I do think that there is a risk that the Fed is kind of patting itself on the back by the end of the year 
uh, only to watch inflation potentially turn back up um, you know, sometime next year. This week marks one year since the Biden administration's efforts to help the Fed in the inflation fight with something called the Inflation Reduction Act. And the bill, as amended, is passed. President Biden now questions the choice of the name, but it wasn't simply cynical. Senator Joe Manchin insisted that the act would help keep inflation down because... On top of that, we did the IRA. Yeah. Now, the IRA was done just through uh, reconciliation, which is Democrats only, but I can assure you, because I worked with everybody, for the last five years I've been working with my Republican friends and said, hey, Joe, we need more energy. I agree. We need to put more product in the market. We need to basically pay down our debt. I agree. The jury is still out on the full effects of the IRA. As PIMCO's Libby Cantrell reminds us, there's more yet to come. A lot of this was signed into to law uh, last year. In many ways, I think for folks, this seems like it's in the rearview mirror, but just knowing how Washington works, actually there's a lot of fiscal in the pipeline. But we learned this week that there may just be another way to fight higher prices. It comes to us from England, which, to be sure, is having its own battle with high costs, as the UK CPI was up this week another 6.8%. But as much trouble as they are having over in England with prices overall, the UK site Pets for Homes reports that the prices of cute little puppies are almost flat, apparently because people don't need canine companionship quite as much as they did during the pandemic. So if that Inflation Reduction Act doesn't work out quite as planned, maybe Congress could just consider legislating more puppies. Sometimes helping others is the surest way to help yourself. We can never have enough puppies, right? That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.